Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Okay, why don't we get started while um, the last people get their food. Um, it's a great pleasure uh, to, to welcome Kelly Bedar um, to our seminar, her last seminar of the semester. Um, so we always um, keep the highlight for the end. So we're very delighted um, to have you here to learn about equal but inequitable the benefits from gender neutral tenure clock stopping policies. Uh, a um, question um, close to many people's heart, but also particularly close to my heart as previous academic dean, mm -hmm. where we had endless discussions on you know, how to think about this problem. So I really look forward um, uh, to your talk. So Kelly joins us uh, from the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, where she is department chair and professor of economics. Uh, she received her PhD in economics from Queen's University, and her undergraduate degree also in economics from the University of Victoria. She is widely published, um, including in some of the very best journals, some of our disciplines, such as uh, the Quarterly Journal uh, of Economics. And I should also remind us that we are podcasting to um, the, uh, a wide audience around the world, and we're grateful that you allow us to do so. So we welcome um, everyone wherever you are, and including people here. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to come and talk about this topic. Um, this has been an ongoing project which we're kind of coming to the end of um, over the last several years. And as you'll see, in some ways, it's a bit of a, had to be a bit of a labor of love given that collecting the data was um, a pain. Um, so uh, let, me, let me start out for the first few minutes and motivate this a little bit more broadly. And then I'm going to clearly narrow down and focus on academics and in particular economists. Not and I'll explain why economists as we go, but you know, it's not particularly surprising. One of the reasons is because I understand how publishing and economics works. And so if you're going to try to think about how, how bringing in a policy might change something, it's sort of good to know how it works in the beginning. Um, so that, that's, there's not, uh, it's not that this isn't relevant for other disciplines, um, and we can certainly talk about it as we go. So uh, I, as a, I am an economist, um, I am certainly most familiar with people asking me questions or giving me their opinion or whatever as we go. So feel free at any point to ask questions or share your story. Or one of the things about this is many of us know something about this. It's a little bit personal. Um, so people tend to have sort of thoughts. Um, so please feel free to share them. I should also say this is co-authored with a longtime uh, co-author of mine at Claremont McKenna College and a former graduate student at Jenna Stearns, who's now at Davis. Okay, so let me sort of, not that I probably need to lay this groundwork in this room, um, but let me just take 30 seconds and do it. Anyway, um, so what I'm drawing here is this is not academics, it's all highly educated workers, these are people with master's degrees or higher. And it is a single cohort. It's people born in 1970, so it's people right around my age, actually. That, we, that is not on purpose. Um, and we looked at them when they were 30 years old in 2000. And what I'm plotting here, I'll do lawyers as an example. Um, this is the fraction of lawyers at age 30 who are, who are female. It's just over 40%. And then the orange is the fraction of top earners in that group that are female. Um, and what you can see is that women are sort of about 40%. They're a little bit less likely to be in the high earning category, but um, there's certainly a fair number of them there. And then if you go out 10 years, so this is the same cohort, okay? So it's not, there's no selection or change in, in, in timing or anything. This is the same group 10 years later in 2010. And what you can see is that, you know, lawyers are a good example. You know, women drop from 40 to 30. 
and more, uh, perhaps more, you might want to look at, they also drop off in terms of high earners, right? And you see that across lawyers and med doctors are, I keep meaning to change this graph, doctors are a little bit problematic because at this point some of them are still in interns, right? So this is a little misleading, um, but it certainly shows you that women end up in the less sort of uh, prestigious uh, subdisciplines or subfields. Um, and then if you look at post-secondary teachers, this includes college, but you see this dramatic drop right, in high earners, um, and you see a similar thing business, they seem to hold their own a little better, okay? So sometimes people point to things like this and they talk about a family gap, right? That as women move through the period of time where they have children, that we sort of see women fall out of these um, prestigious high earning jobs, okay? And Kelly, I mean, again, this is not mm -hmm. the main topic, but I'm just curious whether you know, the post-secondary teachers, is that primarily selection effect that women um, go into the high-earning disciplines, uh, not yeah. a man going to high-earning disciplines, men don't, or do you think it's women? Right, I think that's hard to tell here because um, in this, this is just census data, so I don't actually know if you're a, you know, a junior college or a university or a, um, but certainly it, it sure looks, is consistent with the idea that they're entering um, sort of lower income fields and also that they may be leaving them, right? So if you think that people aren't getting tenure or are moving down and so on and that's more common with women, then that would be consistent. But I, that, this data is too mushy to tell you very much about it. Okay, so this is sort of, you know, to point out that, well, I'm gonna focus on us, right? This is not, that this, this phenomenon exists in lots of places. Why are some of the reasons why we might think that as we sort of move through this period where women have children that we might sort of have these kinds of family gaps arise, right? So we can think about a few things. So first of all, I wanna point out, I'm really focused here on high-skilled people, okay? So one of the things about high-skilled jobs is that they tend to have this sort of early, sort of rapid skill accumulation period, right? You don't just finish your uh, education and go out and the learning stops, right? What happens is, is that you move into jobs and early on, you know, your learning is very rapid and your pay growth is pretty rapid. And a lot of these, you know, notice a lot of the jobs I showed you have this sort of upper out contracts to them. What do I mean by an upper out contract? Well, tenure is a good example, right? You get to come, you get to hang out for a few years. If you uh, are successful, then someone grants you tenure and you get to stay, otherwise you don't, right? Law, but that's not just in academia. If you think about making partner in law firms, you think about making partner in accounting firms, you think about, uh, you could think about tons of it, lots of places in business, these things are going on all the time, right? So if you think about any kinds of short family leaves that might exist by employers or, or something else, it's not clear that, you know, a three or four or six week family leave that you might have after having a child is really going to be able to solve or deal with these kinds of issues that are sort of long term, unless you think, I don't know how many of you in the room have children, but I have a couple of them, and they're very wonderful, but they are incredibly time-consuming, and it certainly didn't end in six weeks, right? I mean, that's just not the way it works. Okay, so, um, so you know, there's reasons to think that, that those might not solve it, right? And of course, the U.S. is the only country, developed country, that I can think of that doesn't have some kind of family leave policy, right? So we're a bit of an outlier here. There, you can, you are, your jobs are protected under FMLA, um, and there are some places, like in California, where there now is um, widespread uh, availability of family leave, um, but most places they're not, okay? That doesn't mean that some employers don't do it. There's some employers certainly do. I'm sure there is 
the policies here. In fact, I'm going to show you yours in a minute. Um, so what? So universities, of course, are full of these high-skilled types, and this is certainly a concern that people have had, right? It was certainly was a big part of the policy debate about um, why we don't have more women in certain kinds of fields and why they leave at higher rates. So what have universities done? Um, <coughs> what has happened mostly, and I'll talk about the couple of types in a minute, over the last, I don't know, 30-ish years, but especially in the last sort of 15 or 20, a lot of universities have adopted what are called clock-stopping policies, right? So what does that mean? It means that if you have a child before you get tenure, let's imagine you're in year four, just something up, right? That you can have an extra year before you go up for tenure, right? Uh, which is why we call it clock stopping, um, when you're evaluated, right? So what is the idea here? The idea is that, you know, having children is, uh, ha is a productivity shock, and that if we're trying to gauge lifetime productivity, we might want to adjust for the fact that there's this productivity shock um, when we're evaluating okay? These policies, and most, most places you can do this up to twice, these policies come in sort of two flavors. The first flavor is um, women who have children can take these policies. I'm going to call those female-only policies, although that's not quite right because in some places um, it's, it isn't, doesn't designate that it's the female, but the requirements are that you have to be the primary caregiver. And in, when they're adopted that way, essentially no men took them. Okay. Um, the other flavor that they come in are sort of what I'm going to call gender neutral variety, um, which you all have, um, according to my data, starting <coughs> in 01. Um, and that when places adopt those policies, what it means is anybody who has a child can stop their clock for a year. Okay? Now, sometimes you have to go in and say, you know, I'm a full participating parent, um, but there's not, but they're a de facto automatic. Okay. If we look. What's sort of the history of this? If you look at the history of this, the early adopters, and I'll show you the data in just a minute, um, were female only, okay? But then um, the later ones are mostly gender neutral, and a non-trivial number of places start female only and switch, the University of California being one of them, okay? So if you look over time, um, at this point, only about 16% of the, and I should have been a little clearer, I forgot to tell you one important detail, the data I'm going to use is on top 50 economics departments, okay? So if you think about research-intensive schools, um, all but 16% of them have a policy of some type now, okay? So there's been widespread adoption of these. Okay, so let, let me just show you what they are. Um, so the first column tells you that they have the date at which a female-only <laughs> policy is adopted, and um, the second column tells you the date that a gender-neutral policy, and I'll tell you how we got all these dates in a little while. Um, but so, you know, for example, uh, I have that Harvard was in 2001, that that's the date at which the gender-neutral policy was adopted. You can see that there's a lot of spread, right? They start to show up mostly in the 90s and then in the 2000s, but there are early adopters, right? So Stanford had a female-only policy in 71, and then switched to uh, gender-neutral policy in 02. Okay. Just a clarification question, are these university-wide? Yes, I should be very careful. Specific? These are university-wide, and in the case of the University of California, it is system-wide. Okay. Right. So, um, so yeah, no, these are all adopted at the university level. What tends to be more sort of diffuse um, is the way they give course release 
around childbirth. So some universities have policies about that. They're not even always followed exactly. There's a lot of departmental variation in those. But in terms of these, they're, they're, they're university-wide. Okay, so that's sort of the, fra the layout. So, can yeah. I also have a, 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 so, but the gender neutral policy can also have the addendum of having to be primary caregiver. No, no. So that's true for us. It's <coughs> true for us. Right, that you have to say that you're the primary yeah. caregiver. So a lot of them have that. Um, they actually, what most of them that I, so I, I'll have to go back and check yours then because I may or may not have you miscategorized. Um, the way most of them are worded is most of the gender neutral ones say that you have to be a 50% caregiver. So you don't have to be 51, right? You have to be a, you have to be a full caregiver. And so most of them do have that and you have to say that in your request to the dean, right? Um, of course, most places don't. Yeah. yeah. It says you have to provide 20 hours of childcare between the hours of nine to five, Monday through Friday, Jeez. for six months. Oh, okay. It's very, but it's very specific. Right. It's very specific. But I mean, don't that's in terms of leave, not in terms of clock stopping. So I think that different places have different rules about the actual time off. Um, so, in the original version of this paper, we actually sort of wrote down a simple model and, you know, showed how the kinds of effects that these kinds of policies might have, um, but I don't think that's particularly helpful intuitively. I think I, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories about ways in which these policies might affect behavior. You're going to be able to come up with 12 other stories as well, and that's fine. Right. Um, I've picked these couple of stories that I, I want to sort of uh, sort of caricature stories because I want you to get to thinking about the distributional consequences or potential distributional consequences of these policies and how people might, when these policies come in, how it might change the way people think about publishing um, or publishing strategies. Okay. So I'm going to think. Of, I'm going to start with a really, really, really simple environment, and I want to think about a faculty that is voting on when they vote for tenure all they care about is total output and they don't do any time adjustment so in other words they're doing what they're supposed to right because what you're supposed to do when these policies come in is let's imagine you have a six-year tenure clock so I get to have seven years you only get to have six years but when you go to evaluate you and I they divide by six for both of us right they don't adjust me by seven and you by six okay if they do that, then, so we're gonna assume they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, okay? Now, of course, you might all say, how on earth would you know that that's how people think about this? And the answer is we don't. And in fact, um, in the little bit of survey evidence that there is that asks people, you know, what kind of instructions were you given about how to do this? Uh, most people don't have any memory of, like letter writers don't have any memory of getting any instructions whatsoever. Um, and so it's, it's of course not all clear how people do this. And we all, anyone who's voted on tenure cases, we all know that there are people in the room who count. There are people on the, in the room who divide by number of co-authors. We all know that there are people who only care about certain journals. Um, there's a whole ton of things that people sort of use, have in their head that we can't see, right? 
Um, so I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But let's, for the moment, imagine that people are sort of doing what they're supposed to under this policy. And then I'm going to also keep it incredibly simple. Let's imagine everybody's equal, equally able. Or if you want to think about a, a sort of less, uh, a, a easier term, think about equal productivity. Okay. And we have two people. Okay. The first person, person A, is going to. They're both going to have a child. Person A is female. Person A B is male. And person A has a child and does no stops their clock and does no research for a year. Okay. Person B is male, stops his clock, doesn't change anything about his productivity at all, right? I'm obviously being overly caricature here, okay? So what happens in this world, and then there's a whole bunch of people who didn't have any children, okay? So what happens in this world um, if you have clock stopping? Well, you know, it actually didn't hurt person A to have a child at all, right, in this sense, if their productivity in the other years was the same, okay, which if we can discuss whether that's reasonable. Um, Person B clearly benefits, right? They get a whole other year to write papers before they um, go up for tenure. And the rest of the people aren't affected at all. So as long as everybody sort of does what you're supposed to under this policy, then it, it's a little weird because now person A isn't hurt, which is what you were kind of trying to do. But person B gained, and that's a bit odd. That's not really what we were thinking this policy was for. Um, and so that, that's a bit strange. But now think about what if tenure decisions aren't perfect. It's not the case that we have some objective bar and anyone who gets over that bar gets tenure, but that of course we live in a world where we all look out at the world, we look at, we look at all the assistant professors now and recently, and, and there's a relative component to it, right? Okay. There's not supposed to be, but it's hard to imagine a world where there isn't some relative part to it. And so if you think about that, then what's happening here? Well actually now it's a really weird world, right? Because if Person B being more productive pushes the tenure bar up. Now, in fact, they might still get over it, okay? They're getting over it, but now person A isn't, might not get over it, if she, even if she would have before. And what's even stranger is all these other people who didn't have children, they're also potentially affected by this too. And so there's this weird distributional, potentially, I'm not saying it has to happen, but there's this potential for these odd distributional consequences. Yeah, just a uh, clarification question. Uh, how how would candidate B stop his cloud or her cloud without, uh, you know, and 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 remain productive? Because we are assuming here that uh, you are stopping your cloud because you became pregnant first. Right. No, no, no. Well, but the under gender neutral policies, men can take them. They don't have to have had been pregnant. Oh. By definition, right? Right, so, but you are getting to what turns out to be a key problem here, right? <laughs> Which is this. The costs of having a child, okay, are clearly different for men and women. Set aside, even if you're equal caregivers after, men aren't pregnant, right? Part, you know, so I don't know about the rest of you who have children. All of my colleagues lately don't seem to get morning sickness, which just seems amazing to me. <laughs> but I was like sick for four months, right? That's a pretty big productivity hit, right? Um, and so right away, the costs might be different across different people. So that's fundamentally actually where one of the problems comes in here. Are you thinking this is interacting with teaching too? Because at least examples that I've witnessed, this is compounded by the fact that teaching relief comes with a year off. So it's not even that B is remaining uh -huh. constant in productivity, but having an even more productive year than usual because they're not teaching. Right. So in most places, both men and women now get time, some amount of time teaching release. Um, and that's independent of whether you have tenure. 
right? Yeah. So even if you have children after 10, you get that 10-year release. Some places, women get more than men. Some places, it's equal. It, and that really is varies um, across departments, too. I think, I think there's someone else that, uh, no? Okay, so, so you can start to see how you could have sort of, you can see where I'm going. This is obviously, we're gonna have to look at the data to be able to figure out what, yeah. what it actually is doing. Yeah, and other just a yeah. question. I mean, when you stop your clock, uh, do you still get paid? Yeah, but you're still working, right? You just, all that's happening is that instead of your tenure being evaluated after year six, your tenure is gonna be evaluated after year seven. So it hasn't changed anything else. Um, and so that's, that's the reason that it's, is this seen as, so are they all year long? Just, uh, just Everywhere I know of, it's a okay. year. That's okay. Yeah. Mostly because there's sort of a cycle to tenure systems. Yeah, right? I mean, it makes sense. It's just you occasionally get people who for me go on medical <coughs> leave or something, which is a different issue, I'm not, right? That, um, that, that their clock will end up six months off or something. It's really unusual, right? They're mostly year long. Okay, so. Let me, so that's, so that's one mechanism through which we could actually see these uh, policies having an effect. But there are other mechanisms too, right? So for the moment, I'm gonna assume that these policies aren't affecting fertility decisions. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, okay? But the even if fertility, it isn't affecting fertility decisions or in, in the way we, economists talk about it, fertility is decisions are exogenous, it could still affect publishing choices, okay? Or publishing strategies, why? Well, think about how we make publishing. I'm going to tell a really simple story about publishing. So economists all run around trying to publish in the same five journals. It's like some kind of weird cult, okay? <laughs> People talk like we don't, but we really, we really do. Okay, um, why is that important? It's important because A, there's, there's long time lags to getting published in economics as a result. That may also feed into this, right? Second of all, it means that when you're thinking about publishing, you sort of, you could, I'm gonna simplify it all to heck here. You could think about it as a really simple world. Imagine I have two choices. I send my paper to a top journal that has a low probability of getting in, but a really high return, because of course, not only are we all running around trying to publish in those journals, but part of the reason is, is because that's what's rewarded in the profession, all right? Rightly or wrongly, we could debate that too, okay? Alternatively, I could send my paper to, you know, a field journal, where I have a much higher probability of getting in, but the return is a lot lower. So if you think about how do people make those choices, you think about sort of, you know, a risk-neutral person, they're just gonna look at the expected values of those two and go with the strategy that's, that's the highest expected value. So what happens when you bring in clock stopping? Well, you could think about clock stopping as sort of adding a period to the end of this game, right? Well now, imagine when I only had one period to send out my, my paper, I think, you know, I, I, uh, it's, the return's not high enough to try to send it to a top journal. I'm gonna send it to a lower journal. Yeah, it means I probably am not getting tenure here, but I'm gonna get tenure somewhere else. It's, it's, it, that's the best strategy for me. But now, if you can stop your clock, you might say, hey, now I get two tries. Well, now I actually have, I, I'm willing to take a chance and send it to a top journal because I know that if I don't get it in there this period, next period I could try something else, okay? Why is that important? Well, it's important because if some small fraction of the time that strategy works, then you're gonna be better, you're gonna gain from that, right? Okay, so why is that sort of, in, and, and of course, that strategy is gonna be more attractive the lower your costs of childcare or, or fertility, right? Because you're gonna have more time, it's effective, more effective time if, you're, if, you're, if your costs are low. <coughs> 
So um, what we're going to see then is potentially a, a change in publishing strategy. Now here's a place where um, if I'm in a room full of economists, I always stop and say, and I want to be really clear about something, which is we all ultimately, when you see some numbers in a little while, economists all want to think of treatment on the treated. Right? This all must be coming through people who have kids who change their publishing strategies, right? But that's not the way you want to think about this, right? Why not? Because this policy actually changes what I might perceive as my choices, okay? So about 80% of the people in this data, I'll show you this after, have children within, you know, 10 years of getting their first job. That means that a very large fraction of them, you know, and a lot of them, especially early on, have them in years seven, eight, and nine. Right? That's like right after tenure. It used to be very common, but it's not as common anymore. So that means, though, that if I was thinking about having a child right after tenure, if in fact things weren't going well, I potentially could speed it up by a year and stop my clock. Why is that relevant? It means that even if I might not even have, I don't even have to see a change in fertility for this to be happening because the people who change their strategy as a result are more, and they get lucky and are successful through that strategy, they may not actually end up ever having the kids early. They may leave their, their fertility the way it is, okay? That's a lot of strategy around having kids. I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying I buy that, believe all that, but I'm just saying that you don't necessarily need to see a change in fertility for this mechanism to be happening, okay? You're gonna see that we have some evidence people did change with the timing of fertility a little bit. Okay, so. This was a long-winded way of trying to get you to think about the fact that there's a bunch of avenues through which this can be happening, right? It could, these policies could change the number of papers we see or the, or the location of the public, where they get published. We could imagine that that might then feed into changing tenure decisions. Um, and ultimately, it also could potentially change fertility decisions, which also might have publishing or, and or productivity effects. So, can I just ask a yeah. quick question? So I, I see how, Four of those or three of those bullet points have differential consequences for men and women. But the second bullet point, it seems like women can sort of engage in this kind of strategizing on equal footing with men. Right. Um, because you know, submitting a paper and having it under review is a fairly passive thing to do. It doesn't require any active energy unless the paper gets rejected, then you have to revise it. So that's the piece. I think. Oh. So I agree. Okay. I agree that this women potentially could be engaging in yeah. that as well. Let me say it in a slightly different way. It's the fact that publishing lives in economics are so long, yeah. because we all send them to these top journals, they get right. rejected 14 times and then yeah. go down the road. Right. But so it's true that knowing that this that they can put it out under review and then leave it there for six months or a year, that part I agree. Yeah. The difference though, I think, is is that there is revising and so on that has to go on before the next round. And yeah. to the extent that women's fertility costs are higher, they may be less able to engage in that part. Okay. Right. So, um, but I, yeah, they certainly could be doing some of it, but the time lag can, can work that way. Uh, so not being an economist, what's the time lag about? So, I just feel like oh, a biologist. So that's a hard, so <laughs> long, long. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, when you talk to scientists, right, you talk to physicists or whatever, they often will send a, you know, they, they run, an, I'll talk, think about some running experiment, they run an experiment, they write up the experiment, they send it to a journal, it's published, I don't even know, very fast, right? Often to the first place they send it. In economics, I would say the typical, I'm, I'm really guessing here, but I would bet the typical paper goes to two, probably three journals before it finds a home, and each one of those journals takes probably it sits at referees for somewhere between four and six months maybe longer so I would say the typical paper takes 
from the time that it is first submitted till the time that it is published is probably two to three years. So this paper has been in existence for, the first version we sent to a journal was a year and a half ago. It will be accepted probably in, well, as soon as I can do the last two things, um, in like a month. And it, by the time it's published, it'll probably be three and a half years. Yes, it's a very long process. It doesn't always take that long, right? There are other things that you send that happen faster. And also, you have some control over it. There are people who don't listen to referees, right? And they send it to Econometrica, and they say this isn't very good. And then they don't change very much, and they send it to, you know, JPE, and they say this isn't very good. And then they, you know, and, they, and they, there's no updating, right? So that if, you're, if you're that kind of person, it could take, you know, infinity, right? Um, but it's, but some of them are fast, too, right? So. How do you think about co-author networks and trying to understand these results? Right. So, I'm going to come back to that and I'll talk a little bit about it. I can't do very much about that other than I'm going to have very flexible time indicators um, that are gender specific. So that to the extent that co-authoring has been rising over time, I'm going to be able to absorb it. The part of the reason, and, and I'll show you where I can do a little bit about it, part of the reason that it's hard is because that's an endogenous thing. And I only observe the successful <coughs> co-authors. So it's just hard to do it. I collected it, but it's hard to use it. You could almost see it as a fifth bullet point, though, right? If women yeah. who stop their right. clock are left out of co-authorships in a way that men yeah. weren't right. when they stopped yeah. their clock. We could. So, but to, again, to the extent that that's t or happening over time, I've got it, but I agree, it's not. It's just hard to deal with. I was curious about, I don't know what the proper term is, but like if you become a professor and then your partner kind of also gets a position because you're married, mm -hmm. basically like would that influence this at all you think because I don't know how so at most universities even if you're on the same faculty you can both be off taken right because it's mostly that you it's 50% caregiver and so therefore you can both swap it off but yeah it's certainly on my campus most most of the ones I'm familiar with um, okay N the, the part that would be harder is the, if there's some sort of endogenous moving going on and I'll, I'll we'll look at what that looks like but I don't it's hard that's hard for me to see Okay, so how do we do this? So in a few minutes, I'm gonna show you some results and the results are all extremely easy. There is no heavy lifting of any complicated statistics here at all. The only heavy lifting that's here is thinking about how on earth you would get this data. So I'll be honest, when I started this project, my senior colleague, Shelley Lundberg, thought I was a wing nut. Um, because she was concerned that we would never be able to find everybody and so you would end up with this massively selected sample and it would, you, you, you would get stopped. So it turns out that's not true, um, but let me tell you how we do it. So we have sort of two unique data sets here. One of them is purely about the rules. So we contacted every one of the top 50 uh, of the universities of, that were in this data set of the top 50 econ departments. Um, and we track through their human resource departments to find what their rules are, okay? So we have, and that's what was in that table that I just showed you, okay? Uh, we do not have data for Brown, we, we're missing, well, we're not missing these <coughs> rules, we're missing some other data, so there are a couple that are missing from our sample. One is Brown because we couldn't get certain kinds of data, and the other is Pittsburgh because we could only get half the years. But other than that, we have all the schools. So that's the easy part. The harder part is figuring out how we were going to find all of these assistant professors at these universities. 
So the way we did this is actually fairly simple, just a little time consuming. So most of you haven't been around long enough to remember um, course catalogs, but some of us do remember those paper course catalogs, right? And in those paper course catalogs, which are now online so no one looks at them, you would get one every year and you would look to see what all the courses that were being offered. And every department has three or four pages in it. And one of the things that every at every university they list is every faculty member. And they tell you, um, most of them tell you whether it's an assistant associate or a full, okay? So what we did is we went back to 1979 and we got every one of those course catalogs. So let's just pick ones, you know, so we picked University X, we got 1979 and 1980 and we looked for every new person who showed up in 1980 who, was at, who showed up at the assistant professor level. Then we went to 1981 and we looked for who showed up in 1981 and so on and so forth. And we did this from, you can see why this is painful, um, from 1980, actually we did it through I think 2010, okay? Um, of course they, we can't use that because they haven't gotten to the tenure decision yet. And so you might say, well, but what if, you know, sometimes those course catalogs are wrong, like they, it takes a couple years for me to show up in it or whatever it is. That actually doesn't matter for our purposes because we're all we're using that for is to find out who showed up at that university. Then we're gonna go and get your CV and figure out exactly where you went, okay? So we have um, about 1,600 assistant professors at these 49 universities between this period of time. And so we have all their names. And then what we do is we go and we find every one of their CVs and then we know their complete job history. So I know that you showed up in 1982 as an assistant professor, and then you become an associate professor in 1989 or whatever it is at the same university or at a different university or whatever it is. So I can see whether you get tenure at the school you start at, whether you move and get tenure somewhere else, or whether you leave academia. So I have complete job histories for everyone. And they might say, how do you get complete job histories for everybody? Because what about those people who leave, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who start out, they spend a couple years, they're like, this is not for me, and they go off and they go to the World Bank or they go to the private sector or whatever it is. So it turns out, that was the group I was worried about. That was the group that my colleague, Shelley Lundberg, thought I was, was going to be impossible to find, and therefore this was a fool's game. It turns out they're really easy to find nowadays. <laughs> so it turns out almost almost every one of those people is in one of two places. Either they went to a foreign university, in which case they're, they're easy to find. Sometimes a little tricky in Asian countries because you have to figure out who they are, but you can find them. And then um, the second place, they, when, if they leave and go to the private sector or the World Bank or anything like that, they're all in LinkedIn. Everybody is this. So we literally have not one person who we can't find. And the other thing that's beautiful about LinkedIn is if you were ever an assistant professor at Harvard, you say it, right? <laughs> Nobody doesn't say it, right? Okay, and so it's there. And so I don't necessarily know your whole after you leave academia record, but I can see that I, I know exactly what you've done in academia, when you left, whether or not you got tenure and so on. And if you come, there's one or two people who leave, go to the private sector and come back, and we can see that and we then track that, okay? Um, so we have complete job histories. Um, and of course, the other thing that we wanted to be very, very careful about was gender, because that was one thing we were, you know, one of the key parts we were looking at. Um, and so, of course, we had undergraduates and some graduate students helping us collect all this. But one, uh, um, my co-author Heather actually went back and checked every person to make sure gender was right. 
because sometimes, with, especially with foreign names, undergraduates don't guess very well. Um, and so, and the other thing is, of course, now almost all these people are on the web. Almost everyone has their picture. It's not very hard to actually figure out. Um, so we feel pretty confident um, that 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 is all correct. What we then do um, is, and then of course we take your CV and we count it up, every publications in every year and top publications in the top five in every year. So I can see that in 1994, you have one paper in a non-top five journal, one paper in a top five journal, and we do it year by year. So we have a complete record of publishing up to any point in time, okay? And that again, you might say, what about the people who leave academia? That's actually fine because anybody who we don't have an up-to-date CV for, we go and we pull them off of the web of science. So we have, we have, per, we have complete publication records for everybody. Okay. I'm gonna, not that it's very interesting, but we're gonna, you know, I'm gonna throw a few of these people out just to make sure that we're um, tracking people well. The first is I'm only gonna look at people who start their career at a top 50 school, right? So some people, me included, started somewhere else um, and moved, then went to, into, moved into this sample set of universities. So I, and most of what I'm doing, people like me are excluded. Um, you might, partly because you might worry that as people age, they might pay more attention to some of these kinds of policies and some other things, and so you don't, you just want to rule it out, it doesn't really matter, but. Um, and then it, what it would also rule out, although this is very rare in this period, is people who went and did like two or three year postdocs and then came in as becoming more common, it was pretty uncommon. The other thing we do, and this um, does matter a little bit in, in terms of precision, is we're only gonna keep people if you published at least two papers in the first eight years. In other words, those people who showed up for six months or a year or two years and then said, this is not for me and left, we're excluding them, right? These kinds of policies were never pivotal for them, and so they just add a lot of noise to the data. Can I ask a quick question about that? Yeah. Um, do you make any assumptions about people moving on the basis of attractive parental leave policies? Because, you know, when you're doing your job visit and people are trying to come up yeah. with things to talk to you about, they yeah. almost always talk about the parental leave policies and they, you know, they sell it and things like that. Do you, make, so, do you need to make any assumptions so, that people are not doing that? Here, so we kind of are, and we kind of. I'm going to show you that we don't see any any yeah, sure. balance at the end, I, which I believe. But I do too, because I don't think um, I don't think people when they first come out pay attention to these. I think most people take the best job offer they get. Yeah. Um, but that's partly why we eliminate people who, who move, or and because that's part of the problem. Um, the thing I would say about it is we're only looking up to 2005. I think it was much less common until recently to talk about that. So for example, I, went, I moved to Santa Barbara <coughs> in 2000 and, and we had a very talkative dean at the time and I think I spent an hour in his office and never did he mention anything about family policies. Or, I mean, I just, I think it's become something we talk about. And so I think if we were adding more years, you might become more worried, but I still don't think that's why people take jobs. But, um, but I'll show you that we don't see it. Okay. So for example, we don't see that when these policies come into place, more women go to those schools, which would be the thing you yeah, think exactly. would happen, and we don't see anything of that. Of course, doing balanced tests on 1,400 observations is also you know, not always also, the most convincing. Also, men go more to those schools because they're benefiting from your parental policy. Right, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you'd be worried you about. Can't, you can't we, don't see either, we don't see either of them. So, I don't yeah. actually think it's a big deal. Yeah, right. I'm just saying, you couldn't say. Right, over time. might also look for it. Yeah, yeah, I think, well, and I think men have, you know, it's one of these funny, so this is the most interesting, in some ways this paper is fascinating because I get, I've heard the most interesting stories. Um, so, I mean, I've had non-trivial number of men who are current assistant professors who come and said to me, oh yeah, we, my wife and I have talked about this, right? That, that you know, we weren't, we're not really planning to have kids for a few years, but we could, 
right? So it's 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 certainly people are conscious of it, which I was a bit surprised by, and I, and obviously anecdotal evidence you don't want to go too far, but okay. So do you think it also changes the decision to have kids like in grad school versus once you become so like do these policies shift the decision to be like oh I could do it this year, but I might as well wait so that it will then. You know, I'm going to show you a little bit of evidence on fertility in a few min in my 15 minutes. Um, I didn't do that. I could do that. Um, definitely a conversation. I've I think that it. We, what we looked at to see is whether they sped it up. Um, but uh, yeah, we could sort of. It, I'll tell you why it's hard to do. <laughs> when we get there, it's because of course I that. We surveyed and that is selected and so I'm a little hesitant to push very hard on it um, but I could look to I didn't I don't remember seeing anything that made me think that was happening but I also I could look again I, yeah to because um, my memory is that most of the almost all the people having kids in grad school are men there are very few women economists anyway who are having kids in grad school um, Okay, so so most of what I'm going to do today, um, and I'll show you some other things after, but I'm mostly what I'm going to be thinking about is the, as the outcome that I'm interested in here is the probability that you get tenure at the school you start at. Okay, now, um, and well, and mo and actually, one of the reasons that that this is important is uh, that I should point out is that most people don't. There's only really one direction of movement here. It's that. Right? There's very few people, like I think it's 8% or something, who started at a top 50 school who move up the ranks. Okay? Um, so thinking about whether you get tenure where you start is, is, is an important um, indicator of moving down or not. Um, I'm also, as we move further, I'm gonna, we're going to push on this to try to understand some of it. We're going to look at publications um, in different kinds of journals. I'm also going to show you what I can tell you about sort of job churning, job changing, these kinds of things. It's a little harder to do than I thought it would be before I started this project um, because it turns out we all move in really heterogeneous ways and so it makes it hard to really do something with a sample of 1400. Um, but I'll show you what I can do. Uh, and then I'll, I'll tell you what we can do about fertility at the end. Okay, so just to give you sort of ballpark, these are uh, smoothed over time. Um, just to give you some sense of, of what the, the lay of the land is, if you look at the average number of faculty, assistant professors hired in any given year, in most places it's about one person. That's um, mostly men, women are down here. There's been a little bit of a rise in that. Uh, the tenuring rates, oops, I keep forgetting that that doesn't work. The tenuring rates um, are fairly flat. Uh, for men, they're higher than for women. If you look at the, and I'll show you some better numbers for these after. If you look at top five publications within seven years here, most people, the thing you want to notice, which will, which will make the numbers jump after, most people publish once in the first seven years in a top journal. There are, we can all name our favorite outlier, right? <laughs> um, but there are, most of us, it's, you know, there's, it's one, there are a few twos, and there's a lot of zeros. Okay, um, and then most of us publish about six or seven papers. Wait a minute, this, the, the tenure rate for women is so low. Is it? Yeah. It's point two. Yeah, that's insane. Okay, I just wanted to make that comment. It's very clear. <laughs> but just to give you some context, it's also very low for men. I guess, yeah, it's thirty percent, right? So, and there are places where it's effectively zero. Um, so, this is this is the reason that other disciplines think we're mean, right? Um, and it's also the reason why uh, we see early movement out of econ departments because departments don't want people to go up for tenure. So leaving, leaving 
if you leave at year five, you would be in the not getting tenure at your starting school, right? So most of this is not denials, it's leaving. But of course, that's all sleight of hand. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, no problem. Just want to make sure I understand the bottom left graph correctly. So this is standardized by the fact that there are way fewer women, right? So even accounting for the fact that there are fewer women, the women are publishing fewer. This is per person. So this is the average. So this is this is the average for uh, the female average. So the tip, I'll just pick a year. Oh, in 1995, the, the average. This one. The top uh, bottom left. Bottom yeah, left. Top, 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 top. Same thing, right? So this, you know, um, in 1990, the average female published 0.8 of a top five journal in the first seven years yeah. of their right, and the typical man, the average for men was 1.2. Yeah. Okay. I'll show you a histogram in a few minutes, and you'll see why it's. it's uh, the, you can see it in the just right in the wall. Just a question. On yeah. The graph. So what is happening in 1995? <laughs> yeah. um, is it just noise or? So if if one in 1995 in terms of this. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's an interesting question. And then the other thing, you, if you want to squint, you can also, you know, you get the tenure rates that sort of come up and then it, yeah, I wouldn't overanalyze it to be honest just because of that. Um, but it certainly, it certainly does look like there was some sort of improvement and then it came back down. Yeah. Um, and if you wanted to tell a story, if you you could also, this is actually the period of time where the female only policies come in and then they get taken over by gender neutral. So you could also, again, I would be very careful um, with that, but you could, because the, the female only ones are really hard for me to estimate because there aren't very many of them and a lot of them change. And so I'm going to show them to you because people wanted me to show them to everyone. Um, in my original version, I had, they were there, but I wasn't reporting them, but everyone wanted to see them. I was wondering if there was a change in the composition of the board of editors or anything like that. Like, uh, I don't know exactly. There, though, there is apparently. I was talking with um, Stefano Delavigna the other a few weeks ago, and he was saying that him and David Card and someone else have, are in negotiations with at least one or two of the big journals to be able to go in and look at um, the impact of the gender and the gender match of the editors, the reviewers, and the authors. And they're gonna they're gonna let them link it. They're not gonna let them actually physically touch it, but they're gonna do the linking for them, and then they're gonna look to see whether some of those biases exist, which would be really interesting. Blind reviews come into effect, but that's I was just wondering. Yeah. I mean, they're blocked. Not another hypothesis that may I don't know. The thing okay. is, by the time you're in this era, blind is pretty questionable because people are starting to be able to pull them up on the yeah. web, and uh, yeah. I mean that's why most junior have gone have given up. I think because. You could find most people in like 12 seconds if you wanted to. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to, this looks hideous, um, but I'm going to walk through for two seconds and then I'm not going to show you all these coefficients. So effectively what I want to look at is what happens, I'm going to do tenure, what happens to the tenure rate of men and women when these policies come in. This is a straight panel model. There's nothing sophisticated here. It just looks ugly because I need all these interactions. Um, and so essentially what I'm interested in is is the, what's the tenuring rate effect on men when these policies come in and how does the effect on women differ from the effect on men? And there's an added complication to this, which is why it looks really, truly hideous, which is that these policies, when they come in, they might not have much of an impact at first, right? It's going to take some time for people to learn about them. It's going to take time for people to start using them and so on. And so I'm going to separate the effect of this 
on the first three years after the policy comes in, actually it's four, it's zero to three, um, it doesn't really matter, I could do three, I could do five, I could, it's not sensitive, um, but I'm gonna look, allow the effect in, right after the policy comes in to be different than after that, right? Um, which I think is completely sensible in that you might, uh, it takes time for these things to come in, and then I'm gonna, a same set for female only. I'm not going to make you look at all these. Uh, I'm going to add them up for you in the tables so you don't have to care about this. Um, and, it, and the key things I want to point out is that we're going to have flexible gender-specific time dummies. In other words, if the time pass of men and women are different, we're going to allow for that. And we're also going to have university-specific, gender-specific university fixed effects. So male and female, being a male and female at Harvard might just be different. And, might, and that relationship might be different if you're at Berkeley, okay? And so I'm going to allow, I'm going to tell you what happens when I remove those after, um, but you might, th those would be important to control for. I do have some basic university X's, they're not, I don't really need them. Um, things like, you know, how big is the school and, you know, what's the average salary and a bunch of stuff like that, okay? So it's just a really simple panel. Okay, so what do I get? So what I've done is I've added all those effects up so you don't have to add, because I don't know about you, I hate looking at all those interactions. So let me look at a couple of them. So I'm gonna start, this is after the policy's been in place for a few years. So the effect of these female-only policies is essentially nothing, right? So the way you want to interpret this is, if you compare a school that brings in a female-only policy, of course, for men it shouldn't have any effect, so it's sort of reassuring it doesn't, um, that then, um, I want to, what you're comparing that to is the left out category, which is before there was any policy, okay? And you see nothing on these female only policies. What happens when these gender neutral policies come in? Men, male tenure rates rise by 18 percentage points. Female tenure rates fall by 19 percentage points. This is the depressing part. <laughs> okay, so the difference, if you want to look at the male-female gap, is 0.4, it's humongous, right? Um, you could also, if you want, although I don't think it's particularly interesting, is compare the gender-neutral version to the female-only version. Um, and but I don't think that's particularly interesting. And you could do the same thing in the first three years, right? So what you see is that we don't see much of an effect initially. It takes some amount of time for this to kick in. Yeah, I realize this isn't the point of your paper, but you have the ability to just say, do men and women get tenured at equal rates conditional on the same CV, right, of all top 50 departments for the last 25 years? Do you see anything? So we haven't asked, so I'm trying to think of if we've done anything. There. So what we have in a minute, so we kind of, I'm gonna show you that that wouldn't get rid of all of it, of the, of the effect of the policy. Um, but I don't remember looking at the coefficients. I am going to put in publications in top five journals and in non-top five journals and co-authoring in one specification, and you're still going to get a policy effect, but that doesn't quite answer your question. Yeah, I'm interested. But I could just Yeah, that's an interesting question. I should look at, I can easily do that. I have not. Because I don't know of a data set that's tried to answer that for top well, so the, departments. Right. So there's people want to, a grad student here in the econ department has looked at co-authoring effects. Yeah, uh, right. Um, on a, she sort of has a she sort of has a subset of this data. It's not quite. Um, although the fact she collected it herself is impressive. Um, so, um, but I no, I, I haven't actually done that. She could do it in her data too. I think I have. I can't remember exactly how her data is set up. 
I also don't know. You have everyone, right? Everyone yeah. who left and everything. Which yeah. I don't know what she has, but that's yeah. Awesome. What I don't have is what associates and fulls and so on were there when you were there. Like I only have the assistant. But no, I could totally do it. That that that's an easy one. I should do that. So it's so surprising I didn't after all after two years. I'm not sure why. So funny how you do it. Sometimes you forget to look for the forest for the trees. Just a quick clarification yeah. question. Is it the case that most apartments went from female only to gender neutral? Or is it the case that most apartments went from nothing to gender neutral? The like majority went from nothing to gender neutral or okay. nothing to female only. Okay. And then stay there. There's a small number of people who go female only, gender neutral. The UCs, Stanford, and a couple others. Yeah, this is one of the reasons that the female only are really hard to think about because there aren't that many that do it and then half of the ones who do it switch and so there's like often a really small number of years where it was in place. So I don't actually, you know, that's why I hadn't actually shown it at first but um, <coughs> referees and editors wanted to see it so, so there it is. Okay, so um, for the economists in the room you might uh, immediately jump to, and I'm not really going to go through this for more than a minute or two, um, you might think, why aren't you doing this as like an event study, right? That's the, thing, that's the thing everyone wants to do at the moment. There's always a thing. Um, the problem here is you can't really do exactly an event study because there are multiple changes, right? So some people go female only, gender neutral, right? And so it's not clean, okay? We can do kind of an event study where we allow, we sort of have, and of course we also don't have very much data. So this is actually asking, I think this is actually sort of asking too much of the data, but we can pool it up and look at sort of big windows before to see if there's any sort of pretend. Um, but the, and then the left out category has to be before there's any policy, right? So, um, and then the other part that's a bit odd here is that this, this when I say that, you know, we're looking one to six years before the policy, it's the whatever the first policy is. So if you go female only gender neutral, then this is weirdness to this, because now the control is back here, even though there's going to, I, I don't particularly like this, but people want to see something, so um, this is as good as you can do. And what you see is you don't really see very much, okay, in terms of these pre, any kind of pre-trans. They're just, they're pretty noisy. Of course, that's eye of the beholder. You could probably tell a story if you wanted to. Um, but what you do see is that it doesn't, you know, we still see these same effects here, which you should. They're now relative to the left out category, which is just before the policy instead of the whole period before the policy. Um. An economist might say, um, these gender neutral policies were introduced so that we would do away with uh, gender differences in initial hiring. I'm going to show you oh. that, that at the end. Um, I don't know why I did it in this order. Usually I show balance at the beginning, but I'll show you at the end that we don't see any change in hiring. No, we don't see anything. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, we do this a whole bunch of different ways. This is the one piece I have of, except I don't show you the coefficients or else we could talk about your question about getting tenure. Um, so this is our baseline specification. I run this a bunch of ways where we take out controls, where we remove sample restrictions, where we add you know, tier interactions, and largely, forget about this last column for a second, largely everything's the same with one exception. I mean, they do get a bit noisy at times, which is here if you remove the gender interactions. Right, so somebody said to me, you know, you have, you have this very, this is very parameterized, which is true, okay, and so why do you need there to be gender, I mean, to me this seems like a bit of an odd question, but why do you need there to be gender specific time trends and why do you need there to be gender specific university controls? 
mean, to me, those both seem true. Um, so, but of course, what happens, and in fact, this sort of shows that it's true, right? So what happens when you don't do that? You can see that essentially this stays the same, and that, but that the female estimates just, you know, become much. Why? Because most of this sample is male, right? This sample has 1,300, no, it has 1,100 men and 250 women. So when you take the gender interactions out, the whole time trend becomes the male time trend, and so you, you can't actually see what's going on, okay? Um, and so that's, that's, that's all that's happening here. Um, then the last column, we control for all that other stuff. So we control for a bunch of stuff to see if we can choke off some of the pathways. So we add in controls for publications in top five journals, total publications, co-authoring, um, number of co-authors on top five journals, and so on and so forth. And you can see that you know it's a little noisier, um, and these come down a little bit, but this is largely um, the same. Sorry, not that they are noisier, sorry, they come down a little, but most of it's there. Right? But, so uh, this is why I said, like, if I had just looked at the coefficients, I could answer your question because they're sitting in here and I just didn't. Okay. Um, and that this gap between men and women, which is down here, is sort of sits here around 30% no matter what you do. Okay. So the question that you might be asking or thinking is, well, what's, what's the mechanism, right? That's what we all always ask. Why, right? Why is this happening? So first thing I want to point out is that you sh I don't want you to leave the room thinking that this is a disaster, all these women are becoming unemployed, and it's truly horrible, right? That's not what's happening. There is absolutely no effect on getting tenure somewhere. The, this is, when these policies come in, it does not change the fact that you know women get tenure. Okay, you can see that there's just there's absolutely no effect. Notice on the rest of these tables, I'm not going to show you that zero to three years group. It's just there's nothing there. Um, so that's that's not what's happening. So what's happening is they're moving down more women are now moving down, okay? You might be able, you might say, well, can we sort of see that? Like, can we see <coughs> that they're spending more or less years at the, the, ten, the, the school before they get tenure? Are they leaving earlier or later, right? And what you can see is that you can sort of see a little bit of this, right? So some people, if they're stopping their clock, you might think, and, they're, and then some of them don't get tenure, they're gonna, we would see later leaving. And we see a little bit of that, it's noisy, but, um, but we also see earlier leaving, right? So again, you could tell a story, people who don't have kids, um, they can, the writing's on the wall, they're gonna, they're gonna get out sooner if they need to, okay? Um, but again, these are all pretty noisy, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to oversell, I'm just trying to show you what the data says. Um, if we condition on getting tenure somewhere, so we get rid of the you know, few hundred people who just leave, you can see how the sample drops, so you can see that most people do get tenure somewhere. Okay, only a couple hundred of these people leave. Then what you can see is that for men, the years to tenure is dropping. Of course it is, because more of them are getting tenure, right? They know before they weren't getting tenure, they were going off, the, the ones who were going off to try again would usually have started on a short clock, right? So what typically happens is you're not gonna get tenure here, you leave after six years, you go somewhere on a three-year clock, and then they get tenure, right? And so if you don't have to do that extra three-year clock, that's gonna drop, um, that's gonna drop your, uh, the time to tenure. You can see that for women, it's actually rising, right? Because now more women are changing jobs, and that's gonna take longer, okay? Um, you, it's sort of consistent. You can see that the number of jobs to becoming an associate is rising for women and falling for men. And then the thing that, of course, everybody would like to know is, well, or is this causing people to move up or down, right? And instead of doing tenure anywhere or tenure at the 
policy school, what about tenure at the policy school or higher, right? Because in some sense, that's what you might want to know. So there's a few difficulties with this, and this is, and I'm gonna, this is hands above the board, I'm gonna tell you that we have to code this at Hawkley. So if you start at a, you know, a top five school, we can all agree on what's down, right? If you start at MIT and we see you go to Indiana, we would all say that's down, right? Okay? But what if you start at Indiana and you go to Irvine? Is that down? Don't know, right? So one of the problems is, is that what's down and what's lateral is not so easy, and it gets worse the further down you go, right? Because the mush, you know, there's what if there's 15 schools in the top 10, right? And then there's about 35 in the top 20. And then if you go down the group that's in between sort of 30 and 50, there are schools that aren't in there that are would claim they are. And it's just it becomes very hard to know what's lateral and what's down. And then of course what's up in some cases, right? Um, so and then there's an added complication. So let's take yeah, University of Washington in Seattle, right? In 1980, that was a fairly highly ranked department. Today, it's not so highly ranked department. So how do I think about someone I see move from there to another school in 1985? That might be a different move than I see someone in 05. I mean, it just becomes really hard, really fast, right? So I thought we'd be able to do this a lot easier, and you just, it's, as soon as you start trying, it's really hard. So we actually, so full disclosure, this is ad hocly done. We, and we list them so you can go in and see what we call lateral and what we call up or down. Um, and that just turns out to be about as good as you can do. Um, and you certainly can't have any finer gradation than that or else it's chaos, okay? Because what's two tiers up or two tiers down? Or, I mean, it's impossible, okay? If you do that, then what you'll see is that when you bring, for conditional on not getting tenure at this policy school, so these are, these are people who are moving to somewhere else, okay? When these policies come in, fewer women move down. Now, I already told you most people move down. So this means um, that there, or sorry, I should have said it another way, there's very little upward movement, okay? So this largely means that more women move laterally, okay? Um, that would be consistent with them sort of having been close to getting tenure and not getting it, and the tenure bar rising, okay? I can't prove this, but it would be consistent with it, and them shifting to somewhere else. Okay, um, so you do see um, some change in that. Um, you don't, you know, there's not much to be found in moving up because almost no one's moving up. Yeah. How many women in your sample are married with an um, economic professor can benefit from this policy? So, so because I could see I this. Would get, I could get close to doing it. So that's become more common. It isn't common early in the period. Um, I don't know everybody who's got a partner who's a, an economist, and of course, it might be that there's also going to be a non-trivial number of people who are have academic spouses who aren't economists too, and they, if they're at the same institution, they would be under the same policies. The reason why I'm asking is because I could see this as a family strategy, right? So we're taking this uh, policy mm -hmm. and. Me, as a woman, I can allocate the time and energy doing the childcare, and, and, um, and my husband can allocate his time 
for publishing. So mm -hmm. overall, as a family thing, it's, uh, it could benefit uh, our family overall, mm -hmm. right? So that's why you, you see men having this effect and women having the opposite one. But overall, the family level will have a positive effect. Right. So, so you know, I the, the honest answer to your question is I don't have the data to answer your question, um, but it's also true that at least economists married to economists, it, other than late in the period, it's not that large. So it would be surprising if it drove everything. Um, and but I, I can't. I just I honestly can't answer that. Yeah. I'm going to show you in a couple minutes how, what I've got. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to show you about, pub about publishing, and then I'm going to show you about fertility, which is always what everyone wants to see. Um, so this is this is just I showed you the the timeline. So this is there's no time component to this. This is just over the whole sample period. So um, what you can see is that most people in the and I believe this is in the first seven years. Um, mo you know, for women, 40, 50 percent of us don't ever publish in the top five and you know of those who do most of us it's one and you know here are your favorite outliers um, and for men it's true that more of them are publishing more in the top five um, but it's still the case that you know there's a lot of overlap and a lot of people are not publishing any um, and then there's similar pictures for top five uh, or non top five I'm just giving this so you have some context for what I'm going to show you in a second so what I'm going to do now is I'm literally just going to rerun the exact same regression, but I'm going to put number of publications as the left-hand side variable. And of course, there's no magic year at which to do this, so I'm going to show you a few years. So if you look at, um, I don't know, we can start at year three, I guess. Um, what we see is that by year three, if you're at a school that has adopted one of these policies, compared to when they didn't have that policy. We're not seeing any effect on male publishing. We are seeing a drop in female publishing. It, it, it's sort of noisy, um, so, so it's hard to know whether it's a zero or it's, it's, it's negative. Um, and then with men, what we see is that this rises and we start to see it consistently rising and by year nine, it, we see a half a publication more in top five journals, which if you remember, since most people only publish one, that's a lot, right? So these are big effects. A quick question about this: um, Is there a correlation between gender neutral and department rank? No. Okay. I'm going to show you. I don't. I don't think I have that. I'm going to show you a bunch of other things which are correlated with it, like the size of the endowment and a bunch of other stuff, and we don't see anything on anything. Because I, I totally buy the gender differences, but I think one concern would be that higher ranked departments are maybe more progressive or located in more progressive areas, <coughs> and therefore went to gender neutral policies faster or yeah. not faster or more likely to have them. Right. So I think it's consistent with my experience. And so I don't, I can't, when we get there I'll look and see whether it's the rank, but I don't, I can't remember if I have rank in this one, but we did run that at one point um, and we didn't, of course the other problem is the ranks are sort of changing over time so it's a yeah. little dodgy, um, but what uh, I'll show you that it doesn't look like there's any institutional yeah. drivers. Um, and then you can also see that there's not a lot of action for non-top fives, although the female estimates are consistently negative, right? And so, you know, if one wanted to tell a story about noisy numbers, one would be tempted to say, well, you know, this is the margin on which women are giving in. They're trying to hold up here, right? But that, I, they're, they're just noisy. I'm not sure I understand the point you made for women gender neutral by your three top publications. So what is 
Why don't we compare? So let's take a single year. So let's look at year seven. Seven years after you started your job, okay? Just as a starting point. So seven years after you started your job, the um, men who start at a school that has a gender neutral policy, on average, publish, have published five more top five publications than men at the same schools before such a policy existed. So, and for women, it's 0.1 less. Okay, but for, for year three, so uh -huh. I'm comparing women in gender neutral university to what is, like why does this mind it, it, it it's saying that women at year at the at year three after I've been at the school that women who started at a gender neutral a school that has a gender neutral policy in place have published 0.3 fewer top five journal publications than women at the same place prior to that policy coming into place right so but this is where small samples also make you a little worried because you know there are 250 women and one or two women a policy flipping could do something odd or they, their publishing changed by one year or so I would be very hesitant to overinterpret it. Okay. I know you're worried about the female only for the noise, but are we surprised that the direction yes. effects are kind of the same? I, mean, I, I am I am I am actually. And so I and I honestly don't know the answer to that. Right? Um, and it but here's an example where there's so few you can end up in the same problem because there's so few schools that have these policies for very long because, for example, the University of California, there's only, I think it's a nine-year window where the female only was in place and then it flips to gender neutral, and that's half of all female-only schools. And so there's, it's, it's sort of hard to know exactly how some of these are working. Well, to me, that, that doesn't seem that's going to publications, right? So the female-only policies, that could be an effect through fertility, mm -hmm. which is saying basically when women have kids, they become less productive. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, the gender-neutral policy might be slightly better because maybe some of these women have husbands helping in those situations. So just comparing women to women, the female-only publication should still take a hit, maybe? But the men should become more Yeah, I think that's what she was worried about. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have a, I, do, I just don't know what the answer to that is. Um, they want to be out of the house with the right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just, I honestly don't know. I've, we've, I've tried a bunch of different trends and a bunch of, and it doesn't. With the, the men only, just because their clock isn't talking, are they still getting time off teaching? Um. So I need to go and look at that to be honest. So I don't. What I what I can tell you is that the teaching reductions don't come in at the same time. Other other than I think in one school at the same time as the clock stopping policies clock so stopping was first. Um, no the in most places oh, I'd have to gee I should just know that. that would explain right. that a little bit because even though you don't have an extra year right. you get a much more productive year right so we'd have to that's a good point I should go and see it would all be driven by the UC so I this is a knowable thing because I can find that one I can find out easily I can get nine observations really fast <laughs> Um, so I should check that um, and at some point I threw the UC out to check it and I just don't remember what it did to that but that's another thing I should go back and do again because that would probably tell me the answer to that question isn't it also possible so the men the men might not or, or the men in the sample might not have uh, women in the same department but they might have in the same <coughs> university right yes that's pretty likely and so if you have a women only then women might actually be spending more time at home because 
that's it's how possible. policy is. It's possible. And so you get this. Right. Thing. Right. So um, I should go and see how much I can figure out about how many of these people have academic spouses. I just don't know the answer to that. I'll tell you a little bit about what I do know in a second. Um, but, it, you know. But it could, a lot of those things could be. I, I've been kind of hesitant to go down the path of trying to figure some of those out just because it's so noisy. It's not so clear to me I, I'm going to get anywhere by going down that path. Um, so, but, but that's a, that's a valid point. Um, okay, so the part everybody always wants to know about, um, fertility. So I'll be honest, the first version of this paper did not have anything about fertility in it. Why? Well, because essentially we have administrative data <laughs> and it doesn't, I don't know, and I mean, there's a small number of people who write on their vetas, especially men born in the 50s and 60s and 40s, um, more, more like 40s and 50s, who report, you know, married, two children, blah, 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 right? Um, mo but most people nowadays don't, don't report it, okay? And so it, there's just no way to really, to really do it. But people really wanted to know this. So many, some of you in the room probably got an email from me. So somebody wanted me to, their solution to this was they thought I should foyer it. Uh, I don't even know how I'd foyer it. I guess I'd, so all, the, all of us at public schools, if you want, you can foyer anything from me and I guess you can find out my health insurance or whatever you want, I don't know. So, but I'm not sure what I'd foyer. I, I guess I could foyer whether you have kids on your health insurance, Paul, and your benefits or something. I don't really know, but not everyone puts their kids on their bed. I'm just not sure what I would foyer and I wasn't doing it. So after dragging my feet for several months and doing nothing, I said, fine, I will, I will survey everyone. So we had everyone's email address, or we found them, and we, that's not quite right, of the 1,300 people, actually we'd surveyed wider, of the people we had, I think we had 85 or 90 percent of emails. And I decided that the highest probability that we would get this information would be if I wrote a personal life email and simply said, will you do me a favor, all I want to know is do you have children, and if you do, what year were they born in? Okay? I'm not sending you to a survey. You don't have to go on SurveyMonkey or anywhere else. This is like you know, a two-second thing. And I thought we'd get a really lousy response rate, even with that. It turned out we actually got like a 65% response rate. But that's including the ones of, that's of the whole sample. So, you know, 15% of that we didn't even have their emails. The problem is it's totally not random, right? So uh, people who left the profession are like 25% less likely to respond. People who got tenure where they started are like 15 percentage points more likely to respond. The higher the ranked school you're at, the more likely you were to respond. Um, and so it's just like, it, and so it's just completely not random. I cannot run, I'm not going to run that regression I ran. There's no sense in which that would make any sense. Okay. Uh, and I also don't even have enough women because now when you get 65 percent of my 250 women, I mean it's just, you know whatever. It now talk, you're talking about overparameterized to the point of silly. So what I'm going to show you is something it's, which is just a simplified version, which is I'm just going to look, I'm just going to say, are you at a place that has a gender neutral policy or not? Right? Um, so it's just simply looking at, at that simple difference. Um, and I'm going to do it separately for men and women. Why? Well, for men, it sort of makes sense, although you might argue, based on the conversation about spouses, that you'd like me to see the female-only part for men, too. I haven't done that. I guess I could. Um, but we can sort of just look, is there a gender-neutral policy or not? Okay, what do we see? 
Um, we see that the people at gen places with no gender neutral policy, that pre-tenure, we see about 45% of them have a child. After places that do have one, we see about 56%, right? Um, and you can see that the number of births also rises, but it does not change your total fertility, which was reassuring to me. If it did, I was going to be really scared. Okay, so I mean, it's just changing timing a little bit, if anything. Okay, um, and so for women, it's harder, and you can also start to see that we just don't have very many women. Um, so if you look at places that have not adopted a female-only policy, and you just look at the um, mean before and after, you see that the mean sort of goes up, it's imprecise, the number of kids goes up. Um, here it does look like you have something, but it's sort of noisy, so I don't, and then it disappears here, so I don't, I don't know if I want to think about that too much. Um, but you do see a little bit of activity or change or action in fertility. When you look at places that have not, don't have a gender neutral policy, but they adopt a female only one, Okay, so these are the same, these two columns are identical because it's no policy of any kind is in place, so they're, I, I, I should actually just put it in one column, I don't know I did it this way. Um, now we don't, you know, we see the similar kinds of rises, we don't see one here, um, but of course they're noisy because I have 20 women, right? Um, so if any of you thought we had grown to a bigger minority, um, we're not very big. So, um, so the female results are noisy by sort of by their nature, but you can see it for the men. There, there appears to be at least some indication that that may be going on. Okay, but of course, I don't have time trends and some other things in here. Um, I can run a simplified version of what I ran before if I take out some of the uh, some of the time trends and some of the other things and get similar results. So it's not that I couldn't do it. Um, it's just I can't do it with you know a million controls. Okay. I, 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 yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to say. And could you, uh, from there, conclude that women who are choosing to have children after the policy, you know, are not those who have had children before the policy? I'm not sure I understand. That, do you have any uh, selection problems here? Um. I mean, I've got several layers of selection problem here. That's probably why I, I, I'm very hesitant to go very far. So, I mean, one of the problems is that I have a non-random selection of who answers me, right? Yeah. Um, and so the less successful people are, the less they're likely to respond to me. So if you get denied tenure, you're less likely to respond to me. And since we see that women are more likely to get denied tenure after these policies, then they're by definition less likely to respond to me. So, I mean, that's part of the reason I'm just, I, I, I don't even want to pretend that I'm doing anything that's very sophisticated here. Um, I'm really just showing you averages in these cells. And the administrative data that you have I guess you don't go to the HR departments to see if individuals who can't get no, HR data. No, I mean, I guess that's what I could for you, yeah. right? Um, but if they took the problem is, is it? It's not always true that people take it up either, mm -hmm. right? So it's that's where it gets really hard. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that was really interesting about emailing all these people um, was I would people would send me these long emails sometimes, <laughs> right, explaining the horror show of when they went up for tenure, 
or I also got a not this is why I know that you know there I can identify some of the couples because typically if one of the couple emailed me they'd say oh yeah and my wife so-and-so um, also has these same children right um, and so so unfortunately most of the people who did that were people I already knew who they were and so I was like well this wasn't that helpful someone who doesn't does I don't know who would have been more helpful um, and so you can you can sort of see some of that I mean the other thing that's really fascinating to look at this is there's an abnormal number of twins right so we clearly all have children late and and there's it's it's it, it, it's impossible that it's fluke <laughs> it's like it's uh the number of twins in this data is really high um but can you see so can so we, we might have talked about this earlier can you see how many years it takes people to be reviewed for tenure, tenure? so yes and no what i see what up? i see is essentially how people reported on their veto so I see you started at school X. I see that you're at school X for five years. I never see you list um, being an associate with tenure. And then I see you move to somewhere else for three years as or move and you're an associate. So I would list you as getting tenure at that school, not at the school that you left. Now, there are a few people who I happen to know you know, went from school X to school Y, and they had gotten tenure but decided to move anyway, but their Vita doesn't say that, and since I'm, I can't do the ones I don't know, they are, everyone is listed as what's on your Vita. So they're, these are based on transitions. Just a, a suggestion, so I, I did a similar project a couple years ago, and one really good source of data for kids is um, alumni directories. So uh -huh. you have data uh -huh. where they went to undergrad, there's usually class notes that are usually right. compiled well, that's a every good five idea. or ten years. They almost always report right. like, Mary and I have three children, you know, Susie, <laughs> Jimmy, and right. Bobby. And so one of the big problems for me is it will tell you the age the worst and the birth, the birth year, but it will tell you the total right. number. Kelly, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. just realizing that over. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you could wrap up in a minute I'll, or so. I'll, well, actually, I can stop. And, and if anyone wants to see the balance tests, I can show them to them after, because you've uh, now seen the punchline, actually. OK, well, please join me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. The people who, who are the uh, have one for break. On. We'll see you. Well, the people oh, who I don't have. We'll see you after the break. <laughs>